You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Eric O'Neill. Eric O'Neill is the, was the young FBI employee who was assigned to Robert Hansen, the former FBI special agent who unfortunately had cooperated with the uh, Soviet KGB for a, a period of almost 20 years. And in the period just before he was apprehended in February of 2001, Eric O'Neill was assigned to him uh, in a position of uh, trainee, assistant, and during that period, he was, of course, subjected to Hansen's temperament, his personality, and it was really the last days that Hansen would know freedom. That is the subject of a current movie, Breach, which is about Eric O'Neill, the, the then young FBI employee, and Robert Hansen. So today we'll be talking to Eric O'Neill and get his sense of Hanson and of that period. Eric, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. I absolutely love this Bayou Museum. I must have been through this, uh, through the entire exam, maybe six different times. Uh, and in fact, I've led two tours through here, which you didn't know about. Um, uh, just my innate sneakiness. Uh, uh, so it's great to be here and doing this podcast. Podcast. Okay. Well, we're delighted to have you here. And next time you come, let me know, and we'll be glad to welcome you, unless you want to do it clandestinely and come <laughs> on your own. Okay. So what I'd like to do is I think uh, there are probably a number of people who have seen the film, but not so much about the film but really about your experiences as the FBI employee who was assigned to be with Hanson and about Hanson. It is a case that has, I think, mystified the American public because of his rather strange personality. Certainly. Um, and it is a case that was strange enough that it has been the subject of a movie. Let me just start off by asking you, what did you think of Hanson? Well, he was a very solitary individual, 
which sort of makes sense for someone who's going to be a spy. He, he I think, survived so long as a spy because he, uh, he wasn't an outrageous person. He uh, wasn't prone to flamboyance or excess. Uh, he lived almost a very stolid life, which reflected on his, um, his extreme views of religion. Uh, he also was a person who could be prone to aggression and anger. He, um, if you pushed him too much and he thought you were challenging his authority, he could explode into a rage, uh, which, which leads to the fact that he had no respect at all for authority. And Indeed, I don't think that his ego allowed him to believe anyone was above him in authority. Uh, I think at one point he even told me uh, if he had the director's job, he could be running the FBI much better. So uh, it, it was in that situation where where uh, I, I went into the case feeling very much the subordinate and had to somehow gain his respect. In the, in the film, um, that is sort of how Chris Cooper depicts him. Was he, in fact, that authoritarian in manner with you? In the film, of course, he says, you can call me chief or boss, your name is clerk, and various other things which uh, were really very, very aggressive. What was, in fact, that the case? Well, he certainly put me in my place uh, the first day. Um, it's true he did say, you can call me sir or boss, when I called him Agent Hansen. Uh, he would refer to me as clerk constantly. I was uh, an investigative specialist with the FBI, which meant I was a member of the... Uh, the little-known team called the Special Surveillance Group. Um, we are the second professional track in the FBI, the agents being the other. Uh, and Hansen was of the old school of agents who had no respect for anyone who didn't have an agent shield. So, uh, you know, knowing who I was and what my position was in the FBI, uh, he immediately went in thinking, this is my, my extreme subordinate and probably is an idiot. Did you uh, think at any time in your relationship that he was testing you? And the reason I ask that is because, as we know, he seemed to have the sense that things were closing in, that reference to the tiger awakening in one of his uh, notes to the KGB. Um, uh, did, did you have that sense in his relationship with you that he might have thought you were more than you seemed to be? Well, we got to back up a little bit and talk about how a spy, how an intelligence op officer, how someone in the business has to act. Um, Hansen, being a spy, knowing what we know now, uh, and, and being a counterintelligence agent, um, when, you're, when you're in that kind of work, you, you can't let yourself devolve into paranoia. You can't let paranoia overwhelm you to the point where you can't function, and it's very easy to go that that way. Uh, when I used to do surveillance work, street work, and uh, my goal for the day was to stare at a doorway for eight hours uh, and, and just get the guy coming out of the door and follow him to where he went. You know, Simple task, but it is mind-numbing to stare at a door for eight hours. And if you ever let your confidence lack and you fall into that paranoia, like, I look down for a second, did he walk out? Um, oh my God, am I going to sit here for the rest of the day and my target is out doing his wrong deed and I'm not going to catch him? Uh, that paranoia can completely consume you. So instead, you believe in yourself, in that confidence. It's certainly how I went in the case, and it's how um, Hansen would have had to walk into that room in 9930 at FBI headquarters. Now, he's in the twilight of his career, 
and he's been ignored for most of it. And suddenly, just before he's about to retire, he's given his dream job, what he what he complained about for his whole career, make the FBI more technical, uh, improve our systems, and protect us from uh, inside penetration and outside computer terrorism. Um, and they gave him that job. We're putting you in charge of information insurance. We've ignored you for executive service your whole career, but now we're giving it to you. And look, we're giving to you this, this assistant who suddenly fits pretty much every criteria uh, that, that you're interested in life. So this guy had to go in thinking it's possibly a sting operation. But knowing that in, in the business you can't devolve in that paranoia, you can't just immediately believe that it's a sting operation. You have to believe that it's a real job, but watch really hard. And until you find that fact, uh, you go forward. Um, I like to say that you know Hansen had to go in saying, um, I'm going to find out if this is a sting operation. And there were only two people in the room. It was me and Hansen. Uh, and, it, you know, in a secure skiff, a vault. So uh, he certainly worked on me constantly to, uh, to try and trip me up and find out if uh, he was indeed the subject of an investigation. Were you, uh, it, it, again, I'll go to the film simply because that's my frame of reference right now other than what I've read. Sure. Were you, uh, when you were assigned to Hansen, were you in fact briefed on the full nature of the investigation or, as depicted in the film, only that he might be a sexual deviant? Well, the film takes the tension of the big reveal and flips it, uh, it you, you know, which w was, a, was a brilliant idea by Billy Ray um, because I think that the audience, the, the audience certainly feels uh, a, a greater you know, explosive reveal by knowing that this guy's a traitor than this guy's a sexual deviant. Now, I was in the business, so I worked traitors all the time. Finding out he was a sexual deviant later, <laughs> that was the big reveal for me. Then probably not so good for the audience. Uh, in real life, I went in knowing he was the subject of an investigation and little other information other than what he looked like in his age uh, and some of what he had done in the FBI above board. Um, I later learned that he was the target of an investigation, that he had done many egregious acts against our country, and we needed to catch him, and we needed to catch him soon. Uh, I also learned that he was a sexual deviant, and he did do these strange things uh, that just made him more bizarre a subject of my investigation. Yeah. Let me just stay on this for a minute. You did. Uh, I take it then when you were assigned to him as an assistant, mm -hmm. you didn't know the full scope of this, that no, he I was – okay, you didn't. Had you, in fact, as the film depicts, prepared a report on your own about database exploitation and so forth? I had. Uh, what I had done is and – and this is quite possibly one of the reasons I got noticed for this assignment uh, – <laughs> We need to talk a little bit about the FBI and, and our government sure. in general and how uh, at least six years ago we dealt with information. Um, we didn't do it so well. And I have always had uh, a hobby in working with computers and technology. I've always been uh, a, a very much a technophile. And I um, uh, was tired of handwriting my surveillance logs. I was absolutely sick of it. I thought this is absolute nonsense because you handwrite your surveillance log. If you made a mistake, it wasn't admissible in court, and you had to go back and start from line run and rewrite the whole thing. And these things could, could have been an eight-hour log. Uh, I developed a program where teams, uh, individuals and teams could write their log into a computer, type it into a computer so you could edit, save it um, into a database system that would um, use data points within each log, surveillance log, per target, and look at dates and past activity in order to predict future activity. The idea being that um, 
you know, our foreign intelligence targets tend to work in patterns. Um, it's how they keep saying, and it's how they, uh, they work within protocols set by their own uh, countries and intelligence services. Um, if you have enough data on a target to predict the pattern, you can sometimes be ahead of them. Um, and if it works one out of ten times, well, you've just caught a spy. And it's actually ra rather difficult to catch a spy. So I had written this program um, for free, and, and mostly because I wanted to make my life easier, but also because I wanted to make my team light teammates life easier and I was also at law school at night and I had to find a way to uh, parlay um, giving up my night shifts to do something else. So I wrote this program and said, hey, this, this works. Um, instead of sending me on night shifts, let me go to law school and on those days I'll come into the office and work on the program during the day and they loved the program so much that they allowed me to do that. You know, in the, in the film, uh, there's a question of how you were selected. Mm -hmm. uh, Laura Lemmy, I think, who does an excellent job, and, and one of my questions is, is there a Laura Lemmy? Or there was, is. There was, yes. okay. And was part of your selection for this assignment the fact that you were knowledgeable on computers and that you were Catholic? I think so. I think uh, initially, of course, you can't sell uh, the job of working in the information assurance section if you don't know how to turn on a computer. And uh, we had, we had and, and possibly still have, the FBI has, and I, I still have that problem saying we or they, um, you know, have some problems with um, agents who are not computer literate. Um, you know, I like to say problems with people who take the, the mouse and put it on the floor and, and stomp on it like it's a gas pedal and wonder why the computer won't go. I mean, that just doesn't work in that sort of job. So they needed someone who knew enough about counterintelligence and knew enough about deception to, uh, to work handsome, but at the same time knew enough about computers to uh, project that this is a real job and keep him feeling safe. Um, they just couldn't find anyone in their pool of agents. So, uh, you know, I think that this is a – reflects very favorably on the FBI. They looked elsewhere. They, they rose above – the um, institutional uh, push to always have an agent in an agent's job and looked elsewhere um, to find someone who could do the job. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. I, I think part of what's fascinated all of us in, in first of all, knowing the case <clears throat> and then seeing the film is trying to discern where reality, where reality is and where the film begins. And I think the director, Billy Ray, has done a superb job of sort of 
uh, creating a, a cohesive script. Uh, I think part of it is uh, for us, for who are very interested in the case, is um, is trying to pick perhaps some of those things that are valid from the point of view of dramatic license, Hollywood license, mm -hmm. but may not have happened. I mean, thinking I'm thinking of things uh, <clears throat> like uh, the the shooting at you by Hanson in Rock Creek Park, uh, not at you, but but the, the sort of scaring you with the, <laughs> with the shots. Um, the gridlock on the bridge and getting back while they were examining his car, uh, the visit by Hans and his wife to your apartment, mm -hmm. uh, and, so, and and the visit by you to your father because you were you were sort of agonizing over your role and what it all meant, um, and even little things like the cross on the wall uh, right. in his office. Um, could you just touch on some of the sort of things that you know we accept as part of the movie? But it would be interesting to hear what you say about the reality was. Right. Well, without dissecting the entire movie to not ruin it for those who haven't seen it, uh, I, I can touch on some of the parts, and I think I'll stick to the ones that I've talked about already. Uh, the shooting scene is the obvious first start. Uh, I think that that, of all scenes, is the most Hollywood. Um, it, 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 it's sort of a needed uh, confrontation in movies. You have you have your your two main characters spar off and have that last battle. Um, your your hero of the movie does something uh, that 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 causes whatever the press of the movie is to 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 happen. That that happened to be uh, Ryan or me telling uh, Chris Cooper Hanson, um, making him feel like he doesn't matter, and him saying I do matter, and then he goes and makes the drop. Um, Things of this sort happen, but in a much more subtle way that doesn't transfer to screen. Uh, there was an underlying uh, aggression and overt threat uh, in the relationship between myself and Hanson that never came to that head but was at the boiling point. Um, there were times in the case when I certainly felt threatened by him. Uh, he was armed all the time. He never, he, never, he never moved without having a weapon on him. He was an enormous fan of guns. Uh, if he didn't have it on his uh, on his hip, it was in his ankle holster. And in fact, one of the first things I was asked to do by the agents was to find out where he keeps his firearms. Um, you know, there are other parts of the movie that are actually very true, and surprisingly, uh, so the Palm Pilot scene is almost true to life. The uh, the scene uh, in traffic happened on M Street, not not on that spur, but on M Street. I, I knew there was always traffic on M Street, so I drove him into that. Um, of course, things are compressed in the movie. So Ryan is able to do in one day what took me weeks. Um, we, we do the Palm Pilot and the DIA trip and car search all in one day where, where we had different whole uh, week scenarios and plans for each of these events. Um, so the movie takes a little bit of liberty there, but, but nothing that's untrue. Uh, Hanson never came to my house. <laughs> I don't think my wife would have uh, been as calm as Caroline Deverna in that in that situation, uh, but but he, but he didn't come to my house, and and that's probably very good because there we were very uh, discomforted by the chance meeting of Juliana and Hanson. Um, you know, one interesting thing, if I can just digress a little bit, that I was thinking of as I watched the movie for the sixth time last night. Um, people people wonder why. Juliana was never allowed to be briefed into the case. It wouldn't make a lot of sense. Um, it would make my life easier. 
the re you know, I was thinking of the reasons why, and someone asked me it, and so I explained it. So I'll explain it here. You don't brief your wife, wife into a case when you are working against someone who doesn't believe it's a case because they might meet. And then suddenly you have someone who has no training at all, I mean, even less than I did, and I didn't have much in the first place, uh, having to be in the position of working against a target. It's not fair. It's not fair to them, and it is a huge risk of um, breaking the case. So I couldn't ever even tell Juliana that I was working an investigation, which would have made things easier because she understood that that's what I did uh, because there was, a, of course, that chance that she and Hansel would meet and he might work on her. So the less she knew, the less he could extract. The, uh, you know, that is a... Certainly something I understand coming from the CIA and having uh, been married and been involved in operations overseas. So I, I quite understand what you're saying about that and appreciate it. Did uh, Was there a point, as there is in the movie, when you were finally able to tell your wife, it's over, I'm sorry? Uh, there was a point, if you will, of reconciliation, of, of, of putting this one thing to rest. Certainly. I, uh, as is depicted in the movie, I wasn't at the arrest. Um, we'd already gathered all the information we needed, um, actually from his Palm Pilot, to uh, be there before him and to catch him red-handed. Uh, so I didn't need to be at the arrest. Um, it happened on a Sunday, so my wife and I were actually uh, driving at the time, and I had worked with, I had told the real Kate, if it happens, and I was waiting all weekend because we weren't sure it was Sunday. We were just waiting there at that drop site for yeah. a whole weekend. You know, these poor guys just out in the cold. And uh, and I told Kate, look, when it happens, I'm going to have my cell on me 24-7. You call me. I don't care what time it is. Uh, and she did. And as is de depicted in the movie, um, I got the page, talked to her. Uh, and my first question was, can I tell Juliana? And she said, you can tell your wife and your immediate family, but no one else. We're still... We're still um, waiting to try and catch the Russian IOs. We don't want the media to have wind of this. Um, we're controlling the media, the press release. Uh, you know, some some of the media had actually gotten wind of it before we made the arrest, somehow. <laughs> so um, so they were being very tight about it. And um, I, I immediately went over to her and said, you know, I pulled over on the side of the road actually, and I said, look, I, let me tell you about what I've just been doing. Uh, and I just walked right on the side of the road, on the side of the beltway. Um, I, I just told her I walked through the entire case. And, um, and you know, 15 minutes later, she she just looked at me and, and was quiet for a while and then just gave me a hug So uh, and said she understood. Um, or actually, she said, now I understand. So she's always been very, uh, very good and supportive to me. It's a very powerful story. Yeah. Let me just ask you, what did you understand were the words that Hansen said when he was arrested? When he was arrested, he the first thing he said was, the guns are not necessary. The guns are not necessary. Um, he said, so this is how it goes, as they cuffed him, because um, obviously he, he knew about other other arrests, and, and I, I think maybe in the back of his mind had to be preparing himself that it was a possibility at least that he would be arrested at some point. I mean, he's fired for 22 years. It's... You usually don't last that long. And uh, I recall he said uh, that what is Bonnie going to do? She doesn't even know how to write a check. So. That's very interesting. Was there, you know, one of the most dramatic points in the film 
is the confrontation that you have, you, in the form of Ryan Phillips in the uh, film, with him when he comes up in the elevator. Was there ever such a confrontation? No, there wasn't. Uh, I never saw Hanson again after the Friday night when he left for the weekend. Uh, it was going to be a long weekend, so I was going to see him again Tuesday, or so he thought. Uh, there were two arrest scenarios. He would either uh, make the drop on Sunday and be arrested immediately, which was the more visceral, I think, in-your-face, uh, handcuffs-in-his-neighborhood arrest, uh, more showmanship. Or the second plan was to take him. I would drive him uh, to a secure location on Tuesday um, with some sort of subterfuge and uh, a- and hand him off to, to an agent who would arrest him in a more, I think, academic way. Um, the idea being maybe if we don't pressure him, he'll talk. He'll be more likely to talk. So I wasn't sure if I was going to see him again. Um, but I couldn't resist as he walked out the door saying, boss. He turned and he said, yeah, Eric. And I said, I'll catch you later. And those are the last words I said to Robert Hansen. The, uh, it, it's a very dramatic ending in which they take the question of why and sort of put it to one side. It's really about what happened, not why he did it. Although I think all of us who follow these things always are, are uh, struggle with the question of why. Why would someone do that? Running like a thread through his life and certainly through the movie is this whole other side, the Opus Dei side, the religious side, the patriotic side, the do-your-job side, and so forth. You saw that. How did... How did you process that? How did you, knowing what you knew and having this man in front of you, how did you come out on putting those things together? Working with Hansen, you had to understand that he was professing so many things and at the same time an an incredible hypocrite. Uh, And you had to keep that sort of sense that he was a bit of a snake oil salesman off your face when he was pounding the table about patriotism and hatred for communism and, uh, and protection of our country and his love of the Bureau, you couldn't, let it, you couldn't let your face reveal that in your mind you were thinking, you're such a liar. I know what you've been doing, ever. So what you had to do is, you know, I guess the way you'd fool a polygraph. You need to believe in what he's saying. You need to believe the lie yourself. You need to go in there and tell yourself, I'm, I am... Uh, my function is to absorb information, not to give it to him, and uh, and just take in everything he's saying, find where uh, find where there are cracks in what he's saying, and what you can use against him, but at the same time believe what he's saying, in to yourself and 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 let yourself believe he's a patriot, he loves the FBI, he's this great person. It it's hard to to explain or relate to someone who's never done it, but. There is such a high level of care one must take when dealing with someone like this to never show your true feelings. Uh, so you really have to hide, uh, and the only way to do that is to believe them. Uh, and then later, when you leave the office and you're not with him or with your target anymore, you can you can let things sort of fall apart. And that's how I did it. I was an actor for those you know ten hours or so. I was in the room with him and. The other time, I just I, I let the stress and the frustration and, uh, and my intense dislike of the hypocrisy wash over me. But un- until then, I, I kept all those feelings at bay. You know, we, we only have a couple of minutes left, but I, I would ask you, 
Um, <clears throat> at, at one point in the movie, of course, he takes you to the Opus Dei uh, Chapel yes. and, uh, and, and really makes quite a hard sell for the whole Opus Dei side of things. And, of course, uh, the director, uh, Louis Free, was also uh, going, happened to be going to that parish. Mm -hmm. Was there uh, some semblance of reality to that? Well, it was actually an incredibly important scene in the case. It happened multiple times. Uh, very early on in a relationship, I had an enormous difficulty getting him to open up and speak with me. And uh, one day out of the blue, he told me, let's take a walk. Uh, and we ended up at the Catholic Information Center, which has since, since mm -hmm. moved. It's now in D.C. and K Street, uh, in a bookstore, what, what I thought was a bookstore. Um, and we walked around. He bought me a copy of The Way. And he explained to me that uh, Opus Dei was the only true um, way of observing the Catholic faith faith that uh, Roman, Catholic, Roman Catholicism had lapsed and that Opus Dei was the only true way to do it and that I should, I should start thinking about um, joining Opus Dei. Uh, and, and he suddenly opened the doors in the back of the what turned out to be a church and there was this gilded chapel. Uh, and he, he said, you do remember what Mass is, don't you? And I said, yes. Uh, and it was the first time in the case, you know, maybe we had had a week before this happened, that I felt supremely confident. I, I thought to myself, wow, this isn't going to be a problem for me. I've done this a million times. This is the right of Mass. I've, I've sat through Masses, you know, my whole life. I'm Catholic. Uh, and I think that was the turning, turning point in our relationship. It's the first time he began to respect me as a as more than just this non-person. Suddenly I was a Catholic. And he was watching me very carefully when we were in church. Um, he was making sure I knew how to say the Our Father and genuflect and, and cross myself at the right times and, and all the, the different uh, rites of Mass that, that go with a, a Catholic Mass. So, um, so yeah, that, that's a pretty important scene because people don't realize that that was the turning point in our relationship. And that's what led me into what next became a mentor-mentee relationship, and then uh, I became a almost a protege, and uh, and that led me to uh, learn the information I needed so that we could catch him. You know, I'd, I'd like to just take the minute or so remaining and, and turn it to a personal question, if, sure. if you don't mind. And that is, I think, <clears throat> one of the really dramatic parts of the movie for me, certainly, was uh, really at the end when having been in this perhaps one of the biggest cases the Bureau has ever held, you've made the decision to leave. And it's quite clear throughout the film that, and I think in reality, that you are a sincere and very patriotic person. And yet you've made the decision to leave the Bureau. Um, um, and you make a couple of comments to uh, uh, your supervisor, Laura Lemmy, who's very well played. And I know, in fact, you did leave the Bureau. And I think uh, that would be of, of interest to folks. I think there are a lot of young people who listen to our, our spy casts. And you obviously made a decision in the beginning to seek out a job within the intelligence community. You mentioned having, the other night, having applied to a number of places. Right. You obviously were on, a, on the fast track in the Bureau. You were on the way to becoming a special agent. And yet you did make the decision. I wonder if you could just perhaps uh, comment for a bit on well, that. I, uh, I had joined the FBI, and I had also applied to CIA and DEA and, and, and many other agencies with acronyms uh, out of a sense of patriotism. And I, I truly wanted to serve my country. And 
Early in my life, I thought that that was going to be through the military, and I had, I had aspirations to go to the Naval Academy, uh, which which didn't come to fruition. But but had always thought in the back of my head that I, I wanted to serve in some way, and the FBI was my way of doing that. Um, it, and within, and I was in for five years. I, I worked some very intense, um, you know, life training uh, operations and, and counterintelligence and counterterrorism work. Uh, and I got married. And slowly uh, I went through one of those late 20-something moments where I really analyzed my life and where I was then and where I wanted to be. And I think everybody goes through that multiple times in their life. Um, you should go through it three, four, five, six, I don't know how many times it takes, but at least once. Um, and I grew through the experience and decided that uh, going back and becoming an agent was going to be more of the same, which I loved. Absolutely loved it and, uh, and, and could have spent the rest of my life uh, doing these intense uh, undercover operations, except for the fact that uh, I also wanted a life with my wife and I wanted a life uh, where we could raise a family and I would be there a lot. And that wasn't going to happen in, in that job. And so what I decided is to take the law degree that I had been working so hard at to go back to special agents class with and, uh, and take it to Washington, D.C. and go into private practice, um, trying my best to find something that related in some way. Uh, and, and ironically, I think that the, the movie Breach has, has, has not yet allowed me to go through the leaving process with the FBI. I, I almost sometimes think I'm still a part of it. <laughs> even though I'm clearly not. Uh, but I can say that it was the hardest decision I've made in my life to date. And uh, certainly the job I think that for the rest of my life I will most uh, regret leaving, although I, uh, I certainly think I left for the right reasons. Uh, and probably the best job I'll ever have. So I'm uh, still a big cheerleader for, cheerleader for the FBI. I didn't leave uh, for, for any negative reasons, but only for positive ones. Well, Eric, this has been a terrific interview, and I very much appreciate your sharing your thoughts, your, your comments on the film, your comments on your own career. Um, I, I would like to thank you for your service to your country. I don't think you should have any second thoughts or regrets about that. Um, you did participate in a major operation. It was successful, and to a great degree that was due to your efforts. Um, and I think the thoughts that you have are thoughts that many people of your generation have. And I think many of them will be confronted with the same decisions. And I think your sharing with us the thought process you went through has been invaluable, and I very much appreciate it, and I thank you for that. Well, thank so you so much. I hope we get a, a chance to talk again. Uh, we will be doing, this is the first of, of two parts, I will be talking uh, to Dave Major. Great. who I think was part of the investigation team, a longtime counterintelligence uh, uh, special agent with the FBI. Certainly. So we'll get a little bit of that point of view. But hearing your point of view has been wonderful, and I, and I thank you again for it, and I welcome you back in the museum, and perhaps we'll do another spycast together. Thank you very much. I would love to, and thank you so much for having me here. Next month, I'll be addressing with my guests some of the questions that we have received from many of you concerning uh, joining intelligence community and careers in intelligence. 
So I would encourage uh, those of you who have questions uh, to forward them to us, and we will try and address your questions as well. You can send your questions to spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to answering your questions and to discussing careers and intelligences with you in our next broadcast. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.